This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So, I don't know how to describe what God is doing inside of me, but that's, I guess, that I have more opportunity to try and describe it than most of you do. I get to preach every week. And sometimes it still can be a mystery, uh, the depths that God trolls and how he deals with us. I've been on a theme, and it almost seems like repeat, repeat. Have you ever had one of those songs you really like? And uh, when you get done with that song, you could go on to the next song, but you have a tendency to push the back button. And you always have to push it twice because it goes to the front of that song. Or, so then you get it, and you're like, there we go. And you just want to bask in that song. And then, of course, you, that song grows old uh, after a while, and you need to find a different song. But I'm still playing the song. And it's a song of grace in the midst of difficulty. And if you were to take all the composite of my 400-plus sermons since we started uh, this uh, church here in uh, 655 Southwood Lane, you'd notice that a high, higher percentage of my messages have to do with difficulty and suffering uh, than maybe any other topic, other than, of course, Jesus Christ. That's a very, that, that one gets woven into every one. But there's probably a reason for that, and that is me constantly needing to address the facts that in this world, when you stand for truth, there is an incredible backlash that comes against you. And you've heard me say this before, that but everyone that lives in this fallen world has difficulties. But when you choose to follow Christ, you have bonus ones, because now you have the powers of hell that are seeking to destroy and undermine what God is doing in your life. You see, he has limited resource. Only one-third of the angels uh, went with Lucifer. That means uh, it's a limited amount. It's a finite number, which means it can be counted. And he does not have unlimited resource, which means he's, the devil's going to spend his best resources to stand against the best threats. You choose to be a threat, well, guess what? You get his best resources. And so that is not something to be fearful of. It's something to be aware of and to be armed for. And so oftentimes I will, I will rehearse these themes in my life to not be surprised by the trials that I face. To not consider it strange, my brethren, when we face trials of many kinds. Because many of us in North America consider it strange. And yet, even though the scriptures say, do not consider it strange, we still do. And even though many of you have heard me preach on it many, many times, we still consider it strange. And here's the real kicker. Even I do. It's like, God, why am I still going through this? It's like, Eric, do we need to review last week's message? And so it, is, it does have something to do with our heritage. When you grow up in this culture, you are predisposed to seek affluence, to seek comfort, and to seek ease as a priority point. That's what we do. That's what humanity is for. That's what we do in our limited time here on earth is we need to seek the easiest way through. When you're going through your education, you're thinking, what would be the best job that I feel like doing? And what is your criteria for deciding that? What makes the most money in the shortest period of time with the least amount of effort? So that you can do what? So that you can enjoy the rest of life. And yet, the framework and the lens of the kingdom of heaven actually does not match that. The kingdom of heaven says you have one life to live. You have one go at this thing. And every inch of your being is supposed to be swallowed up in the grand pursuit of Jesus Christ. Knowing him, being found in him, revealing him to the ends of this earth. There is a lost and dying world that is going to hell. And the only way that they can know that there is a gospel of grace, there is saving grace in the person of Jesus Christ, is if someone would get their game on. Someone would be willing to sacrifice the ease and the comfort that is baiting us in this generation to say, I choose a more difficult path. I choose to forsake the easier road and I choose the narrow one, narrow, the narrow way. Fewer those who find it. 
Narrow means a way of difficulty and compression. Oh. Well, that's not very attractive to any of us in this room. So as I rehearse this, I'm rehearsing it for myself as well. I just want you to know that. I have American mentalities deeply baked inside of me, and I don't even realize it at times. So even I get surprised by the fact that trials persist. They continue. I keep thinking, well, this one has to end someday, and then it continues. And then it continues on. It's like, what? That's not right. And so this is a message. I'm dedicating it to Grace because Grace knows this maybe better than anyone. She's had, ever since I've known her for, what's it been, 10, 11 years? She has had physical ailments that have persisted in her life and it is not for lack of faith. It is not for lack of living fully for Jesus Christ that she has had these weaknesses attend to her life and yet what I have witnessed in Grace McConaughey's life is an ever abundance, an ever growing picture of the mercy and the triumph of Jesus in and through weakness. And so how we appropriate all these things, because many of us in here know that in the New Testament, we see the power of God revealed. We see the apostles walking through the land and the sick are healed, dead are raised. So what are we supposed to expect? We can't expect weakness, can we? We can't expect difficulty. We can't expect sickness. What, what is our rightful expectation? And that's part of what I think is reasonable and right for us to grapple with. So, this is, uh, I guess, at least a platform for this message. I call it the necessity of shade. It was funny because uh, Philip Hartman said, is this on Jonah? And I was saying, oh boy, that could be misunderstood, couldn't it? Uh, The necessity of shade. A study in God's pattern for publishing the power of the gospel. There's a pattern. I liked how the triple P sound in there. Studying God's pattern for publishing the power of the gospel. Isn't that great? There is a pattern for how the power is expressed. And it is not the pattern that most of us would expect. The pattern is God makes his vessels weak, frail even. And through that weakness, he shines. That's the exact opposite of what we want to agree with. How about he makes us strong and then out of our strength, he looks strong. That makes so much more rational sense to us. So most of us, when we're groomed in this life, is we want positions of power. We want positions of influence. Why? I mean, we have our good Christian mentality for it. If I get that position, then I'll say, I just want to thank Jesus Christ. If I could could be the quarterback for an NFL football team, then when I'm in the locker room and they say, so what motivated you today? Jesus Christ. You see, I could use my power to showcase him. Eh, We have it all figured out. Here was my prayer growing up. God, give me a million dollars and I'll tithe 10%. In other words, out of my strength, I will show your love. What do I want? I want the strength. I don't want the weakness. And yet God deliberately goes out of his way time and time and time and time and time and time again throughout the New Testament to say, you guys want to know how to live this? You have to accept weakness because that is my thoroughfare for showing my strength. What? God, we're Americans. Can we revise that? Because we have so much strength. Uh Uh-huh, and God's not being seen in this country, is he? In other words, in and through our strength, God's not being seen. But those of us that are willing to choose a different pattern, adopt it as our own and say, God, I agree with you. I'm not going to fight the system. I'm willing to allow trials, difficulties, sufferings to be the avenue through which you reveal your strength. I don't naturally, in my firstborn state, want that. Neither do you. But there is another part of me, the secondborn side, the new creature in Christ Jesus, that actually says, Amen. God, I accept your way, and I know that you are wise, and you know how to do this thing. So the necessity of shade, where does that come from? Well, I spend a lot of time. I have... I have my devotionals set up now. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. I have uh, Streams in the Desert is on the far left of my screen. It's in Logos. So Streams in the Desert. And then in the middle, I have uh, Morning and Evening Devotions with Charles Spurgeon. And then on the right, uh, I have uh, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. And to be honest, I usually only read the far left Streams in the Desert. Now, it's not saying I don't like the others. I do read them. But I have my biblical study to do. You know, these take a long time to read through. 
And so oftentimes I just go straight to Streams in the Desert. If any of you have never read Streams in the Desert by Mrs. Charles B. Kalman, that's what the, that's what the author's name is, Mrs. Charles B. Kalman. She doesn't even say her name. She adopts the name of her, her husband. Isn't that interesting? Uh, who had passed away. And I mean, I tell you what, if you ever go through trials and difficulties, it becomes like just a thing you carry around with you. Because every day is, is this type of stuff. It's, it's saying, hey, Eric, this is good for you. It's like, you know what? I just need to hear that. I need to hear that this trial is good for me. As opposed to hearing what the culture says to me. It's like, oh, poor you. That's what the culture says. But God says, hey, this is good, isn't it? You getting all that grace that I had for you in that difficulty? So this is uh, a, just a quote that stood out to me so dynamically. Every flower, even the fairest, has its shadow beneath it as it swings in the sunlight. Where there is much light, there is much shade. Think about it. The greater a flower grows in size, it's catching more and more of the sun. It's revealing more and more of the beauty. But guess what? It also has underneath it more shade. And we, we don't want the shade. We want the light. And yet there's something to that which is quite profound. Shade. For those of you that don't know what the word means, noun, Latin from scotum, a shield. So I, there's actually a lot of definitions. I went to the 1828 dictionary just to make it fun, which we often around here call the Philip Hartman dictionary. <laughs> First definition, darkness, obscurity as the shades of night. So with the increase of light also comes the increase of something else. An obscure place, properly in a grove or closed wood, which precludes the sun's rays and hence a secluded retreat. Something that intercepts light or heat. This is a fascinating one to me, artistically speaking. In painting the dark part of the picture, a shadow. So in other words, I don't know if any of you have ever had this, but where there's certain dimensions of your life which remain unexplainable, it's like, why am I suffering with that? Why, why am I going through this? And of course, the devil has all sorts of answers to this because you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. So you can spend a lot of time with the devil trying to argue and say, no, I'm innocent. Remember Job? He's like, hey, I didn't actually do anything. That's precisely, it's a shade moment in, in Job's life. You know what got Job in trouble? Is that he defended himself. That was Job's fault. It wasn't actually that he deserved any of it. He actually was an amazing man. God was bragging about him in the very first verses. What got Job in trouble is when he went into the shade, he started justifying himself. Hey, guys, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. And instead of declaring the goodness of God in that moment, he defended himself. And it's the same thing we fall for, too, when shade comes. Why the shade? So I'm going to give two reasons very simply. In this message, I'm going to go through the book of Acts. Not the whole, I'm not just going to read the book of Acts, even though some of you will wonder if I'm actually reading the entire book of Acts, because it sure will feel like it, maybe. The first reason why shade is necessary. Paul says, I'm going to give some words into Paul's mouth. Hey, guys, I've received shade so that I am not exalted above measure. In other words, Paul has seen great things. He has seen extraordinary light. And lest he be puffed up, lest he be exalted as a minister of the gospel, God cares deeply about him. If he's going to entrust him with so much light, he also needs to allow for shade in Paul's life. So Paul says that in 2 Corinthians, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Second one is God's strength is perfected through our weakness. So why shade? Well... Shade keeps us humble, and shade is the thoroughfare, the chosen avenue through which God reveals his strength. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, in reproaches, in hardships, in persecutions, and in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We all know the scripture. I'm just saying, do we actually take it? and run with it? Do we actually believe it in our daily life, or do we just esteem it theologically? So I have a philosophy on these points. Most of the leaders that you know, this is, uh, this is a hard thing to even know how to articulate it. I was talking with Judah Kofer in an airport. I don't know, it was the Atlanta airport. Where's Judah? Was that the Atlanta airport that we were in? We weren't in Atlanta. Yeah, I can't remember either. <laughs> sort of sad, isn't it? Yeah. So, and we were talking, we had some kind of layover. Uh, and 
The issue was that every Christian leader that I esteem, when I've studied their life, one thing I've recognized, there's something that even startles me. Every one of them had extreme difficulty in their life. And yet most of us on the outside don't know that. We don't know about their extreme difficulty. All we see is the fruit that was born through their life. Well, praise God for that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having their fruit be what leads because that is truly what their life is remembered for because what they were struggling with wasn't necessarily sinful. It was difficulty. It was challenge at a very high level. And so I have a philosophy that has grown over time and that is every strong Christian has a thorn or something that is sent to buffet them, something that is a unique challenge to them which keeps them humble and uh, keeps them as a thoroughfare for God to show forth his strength. So every strong Christian is a thorn. Every strong Christian understands suffering. Here's just a short list. William Carey, the extreme suffering that man went through as a missionary. I mean, he's one of the most famous missionaries of all time. Yet, when you study in depth his life, it is one difficult life. Amy Carmichael, physical ailments her entire life. I mean, that's why she had to go back. When she started as a missionary in Japan, she had to return home. She was sent home because of her physical ailments. She literally went to India originally because it seemed like if she stayed along the coast that it was actually good for her health. Well, she didn't really stay along the coast, and then she risked her life day in and day out to rescue young girls that were being sold into temple prostitution. Hey, uh, Amy, you're not doing what the doctor prescribed. She says, I'm not here to listen to a doctor. I'm here to listen to Jesus Christ. The whole life she had physical pain. William Booth, um, well, you could talk about it as physical pain, but you could also talk about it as rotten tomatoes to the face. This guy had such opposition against him in East End London. His wife, Catherine, was in constant physical challenge in their life and in their ministry. Corey Ten Boom, well, uh, that's her whole story is even in the darkest place, God is there. I mean, she spent time in Ravensbrook. Her father died there. Her uh, sister, well, actually, her father died before they got there. Betsy died there, her sister. I mean, extreme suffering that she went through. Gladys Aylward, read the story. I mean, it's, it's quite profound how difficult her life was in China. Hudson Taylor, almost daily he was receiving news. He was sponsoring who knows how many thousands of missionaries throughout China and hearing about their martyrdoms and their death, the shortness of finances, constantly living in that friction of soul. C.T. Studd, at the age of 53, is lying on his deathbed because he'd had so many diseases hit his body. And he ends up hearing about interior China and raises his hand to heaven and says, God, send me. This man was like a walking uh, medical miracle. No one can even explain how much physical suffering this man had in his body, and yet he defied it his entire life. Oswald Chambers, I mean, the guy's life was all challenge and difficulty. He even died young. And yet look at the power, the, what was published in and through these men's life. The list goes on and on. We can just keep going. So I'm going to talk very specifically about one man who most of you know that I have a, a certain... Uh, affinity for. I, I love uh, Charles Spurgeon's sermons. It's actually one of the, my favorite things to just sit and read is a Charles Spurgeon sermon. But uh, So there's Charles Spurgeon for you. I'm going to read some of the uh, things that he is known as. Commonly known through the ranks of evangelical Christianity today as the Prince of Preachers. Some people would say the Prince of all preachers that have ever lived. In other words, this man was a marvel when he spoke, truly to the point where countless thousands of people would give their life to Christ. But just the eloquence and the beauty and the epic nature of how he presented Christ just mystified uh, a generation and generations after. Charles Spurgeon is one of evangelical Christianity's immortals, is one of the things said in a biography about him. At the age of 23, Charles Spurgeon was the pastor of the largest, what we could call megachurch in the Protestant Christianity. With his services held in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, one of London, England's largest buildings, filled to capacity whenever he spoke. Americans returning from a tourist visit to England were commonly asked two questions. Did you see the Queen? Did you hear Spurgeon? So when you hear that, especially a young guy in here, it's like, oh boy, to be Charles Spurgeon. So who wants to be the next Charles Spurgeon? If I, if I asked that question, you guys would sort of look at me like, what are you, what are you baiting us for? What are you trying to get at here, Eric? Because every one of us would want to be Charles Spurgeon. If you're a young theological student, if you're in any type of seminary training, if you're a Bible student and and someone were going to say, what kind of pattern would your life want to follow? Well, if you had to remove the biblical characters, because, of course, Jesus would be the one, 
But then it, today we say, oh, take Jesus off the table. Well, then you go to Paul, right? Okay, take, take all the biblical characters off. Who do you have left? Well, let's see. Charles Spurgeon would be a good one. So I'm going to review a quote that I read earlier. You'll you'll notice I'll review this quite a few times. Every flower, even the fairest, even the prince of preachers, has its shadow beneath it as it swings in the sunlight. Where there is much light, there is much shade. The amount of suffering that this man went through, he had such a following, such an impact, such a voice, and yet such suffering. So I'm also going to give you Paul's line here, almost as if it's Charles Spurgeon talking. I take pleasure in weaknesses and reproaches and hardships and persecutions and in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then, I'm, then I am strong. So Charles Spurgeon in weaknesses. 1867, age 33, Spurgeon suffered his first attack of chronic nephritis or Bright's disease, kidney inflammation similar to lupus. 1869, age 35, Spurgeon was diagnosed with gout and inflammation of the joints. 1886, we get some perspective of what kind of pain he'd been in that entire time. Age 52, Spurgeon said, When I'm suffering very greatly from gout, if anybody walks heavily and noisily across the room, it gives me pain. And in a letter to his brother, I thought a cobra had bitten me and filled my veins with poison. And with the bounty of medicine given him, Spurgeon said he would have been dead long ago if he'd tried half of them. In in, uh, reproaches, in persecutions. So I wrote this actually in a book called The Bold Return of the Dunces, which is out, but this was a deleted scene. And it's funny because I remember thinking, wait a minute, I, I researched this. I did a whole little study on it. I couldn't, then I found it. It was in my manuscript for The Bold Return of the Dunces, but it was highlighted, sort of like I lifted it out. You know, why I do that. It's, remember there's a director's cut? We as directors or writers were always like, now that would, and then it, things get cut. You can't figure out how that happens. So I, but then if you're me, you stick it in a sermon. So this is a deleted scene. Isn't that fun? We get a deleted scene from a book. So in this, in this part of the book, it's talking about Harvard and the history of Harvard, that Harvard actually started out as a school to train preachers. Isn't that an incredible thought? And so obviously it is strayed from this point. Harvard started out strong. Its foundational motivations were inspiring and grand, but it lost its focus somewhere in the late 1700s. Charles Spurgeon referred to it as the downgrade. When a stunning wave of liberal ideology began to stream with alarming rapidity into the conservative sector of evangelical Christianity. By the year 1806, Harvard had fully moved away from center, dismissing its Christ-only roots as bygone notions from a bygone era. In response to this ideological erosion at Harvard, Andover's Theological Seminary was launched in 1807 to train the brightest minds in the way of Christ, the way Harvard had set out to originally do. But even Andover, by 1887, was on the downgrade. It seemed that to find a school that held the age-old values of evangelical Christianity in 1887 was about as difficult as digging for a ribeye steak in the Saharan desert. Even the stoutest bastions of evangelical truth had begun to show the sure signs of erosion. The cry, where's the beef, could be heard throughout the evangelical landscape. It was at this hour that Spurgeon, a trainer of Christian ministers in his own right, spoke out against this dire trend. As the most famous Christian preacher in the world at that time, it would have been thought that his concern would have rallied the troops of the evangelical elite to action and decision. It did, but not the action Spurgeon had expected. The Baptist Union, of which Spurgeon was the most famous member, censured him, distancing themselves from his hardline, old-fashioned bluster. Open-mindedness had officially entered the living room of Christian thinking, and it wasn't planning on giving up its seat on the couch, even for the prince of preachers. Charles Spurgeon died five years later, for which his wife and others close to him would attribute to the anguish he experienced due to the backlash he endured in attempting to stay this downhill slide. The betrayals, the accusations, the slander, and calumnies Spurgeon faced in taking the unpopular position was shocking to even the man that preached endurance in the gravest trials. In hardships, it is easy, this is Charles Spurgeon quote, it is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but... He is the skillful singer who can sing when there is not a ray of light by which to read. Who sings from his heart and not from a book that he can see because he has no means of reading save from the inward book of his own living spirit whence notes of gratitude pour forth in songs of praise. In distresses, I do not suppose there is any person in this assembly, he's speaking to a very large assembly, who who has stronger fits of depression of spirits than I have myself personally. After Spurgeon was witness to the harrowing death of seven people being trampled to death, he said, the very sight of the Bible made me cry. 
I think it was, says Spurgeon, I think it would have been less painful to have been burned alive at the stake than to have passed through those horrors and depressions of spirit. So when you look at that, it's all, if you know Spurgeon and the light that he showed, the glory of God that he portrayed, the strength of this man was almost too much for a generation. I mean, they had, people would just melt before the strength of his preaching. And yet, underneath that grand picture, that grand flower, was some incredible shade. So, I know at first this seems like a contradiction. I'm going to read a couple things here. Strength. I, I, you know, I'd never heard this before until I was reading it uh, a few weeks back in an A.W. Tozier book. It was said of Spurgeon that his prayers raised up more sick persons than the ministrations of any doctor in London. Okay, that's some strength. What's it coming out of? It's coming out of a man that himself is physically weak. Isn't that an irony? That God would allow him to maintain in a continued physical weakness. Meanwhile, through his life and his ministry, more people are being healed than by all the doctors in London. Wow. Weakness. This is actually one of, a very profound quote. Health is set before us as if it were the greatest thing, the great thing to be desired above all other things. Is it so? I would venture to say that the greatest blessing that God can give to any of us is health. Listen to this. With the exception of sickness. Sickness has frequently been, used of, been of more use to the saints of God than health has. If some men that I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. I know at first it seems like a contradiction. This man who believes in the ability of God to heal would first of all not be healed himself and then give such a quote. But what does this man know? This man knows that in and through his physical weakness, God showed forth his strength. And though he does believe that health is a grand victory that is gained for us at the cross, he also recognizes that even the trials we face provide a similar channel to reveal strength. Strength. So now we're going to look at Paul, the life of Paul, because this is what we're going to transition into. Because you could take all the templates of, of Christian history, all the great men and women of God that have gone before us, and you could study this out. But God actually gives us his own study. He gives us the life of one singular man, more so than any other, other than the life of Jesus. We can actually follow this man's life in the New Testament as a por portrait of what takes place when someone gives everything they have to the person of Jesus. Watch his life and see what happens. So again, this is a seeming contradiction. God worked powerful miracles by the hands of Paul. So handkerchiefs or aprons he had touched were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Okay, that's pretty impressive. Weakness. A thorn was given me, the same guy. A thorn was given me in the body, in his physical body, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Okay. Does it seem like a contradiction, but it's not. The two play hand in glove. Introducing Paul the Apostle. So this is, this is a simple way of describing Paul the Apostle, almost as if you don't know who it is, okay? But just like I did for Spurgeon. I get, I'll give a quote about Paul the Apostle. This is Baker Encyclopedia. Paul the Apostle, known as Saul of Tarsus before his conversion to Christianity, the most influential leader in the early days of the Christian church. Through his missionary journeys to Asia Minor and Europe, Paul was the primary instrument in the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. Moreover, his letters to various churches and individuals contain the most thorough and deliberate theological formulations of the New Testament. In other words, this guy holds a tremendous amount of weight. Who this man is, this is the prince of preachers, okay? Do you see the parallel I'm drawing? This is the guy. This is the one with the message. This guy had more influence on the early church than anyone. So what if we look at his life? What if we look at his life and say, okay, so what is the pattern? What does it look like, Paul? I mean, we've seen Jesus, but he was God. So what does it look like when a man who is not God gives himself to Jesus and says, Holy Spirit, move in and do whatever you want to. Reveal the kingdom of heaven through a human body. What would we see? So who wants to be the next Paul? I mean, uh, do we raise our hand to that? Well, after seeing the Spurgeon one, we're sort of like, I don't know if I'm going to raise my hand to that. Well, at the same time, I'm not saying that any of us are going to be Paul, but we want to have that same oom 
oomph. We want to have that same vigor. We want to have that same love and compassion, strength and boldness and courage, don't we? You want it? You want that life? You want that same Holy Spirit living in you? That same Holy Spirit that actually raised Christ from the dead, dwelt in Paul the Apostle, carried him in his life. So I want to go on an exploration with you. But before we do it, listen to Philippians 4.9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. Who's talking? Paul. What does he say? Do. So the things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. Do these things. The life that you see Paul living. He's actually saying you need to live this. This is the life you're supposed to live. And the God of peace shall be with you. A lot of us have this alternative reality where we say Paul the apostle lived in a different era. A different time. God worked differently in men back then. And so, yeah, their life was more extreme. Our lives, we're not supposed to live like that. What do you do with Scripture? You have to literally ignore everything I'm going to share today, which is, I mean, this isn't even going through Paul's letters. Today I'm just going through Acts. I'm just showcasing what the Bible shows of this man. But it says, the things that you've seen in me. So even the descriptives that we watch of Paul do. The making of a powerful gospel vessel. This man, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to Ananias, not the high priest, but the man who is going to lay hands on Paul in Damascus and heal him of his blindness. Remember, he was struck blind by the bright light of Jesus uh, on the road to Damascus, where he was going to persecute the Christians in Damascus. Instead, he's knocked off his horse, and so now he's blind. For three days, and this is what Ananias is spoken, uh, this is what the Holy Spirit speaks to Ananias. This man, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, that's not a fun thing to have to see. You know, have we ever been shown how much we need to suffer for his name's sake? Would that even have any stickiness to us as American Christians? Could we even swallow it or would we spit it right back out? What if the Spirit of God came today and said, I need to show you something? Oh, please, show us whatever you desire to show us. I need to show you how much you need to suffer for my sake. You see, I have called you. You are a chosen vessel. I have a desire to use your life. I need to show you something first. I need to show you how much you need to suffer. You see, back in the early church, as you're going to see as I go through this, the doctrine of suffering was new. They didn't yet understand it fully. That's why you see it coming out in the letters, in the epistles. You see, they were expecting the Messiah to come and devastate the enemy, to establish a kingdom. They weren't expecting him to go back to the throne of heaven and send forth a spirit and say, okay, now we have uh, a season of grace. You guys are going to be the hunted. You will be as lambs unto slaughter. Wait, wait, wait a minute here. What's going on? Wait, we didn't have this figured in. You see, there's a season. It's called the church. And we are in it. And this season, this passage of time, is very significant in history. Paul in Damascus. So we're going to go through Paul's journeys. I'm going to go through this. If you see your notes, it could be a little overwhelming. It's like, whoa. There's we're going through the book of Acts, and we're literally going to go right through. I'm going to read it fast and try not to make commentary. I'll have a couple moments. Paul in Damascus. I mean, literally, you can see most of Paul's journeys uh, here. I wish I had a map, and we could be good, zooming around. After many days had passed, the Jews arranged to kill him. Well, that's quite the start. This is like in Damascus. This is like he just popped out of the spiritual womb. (laughs) The Jews arranged to kill him, but their scheme was known by Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and lowered him in a basket through the wall. Paul in Jerusalem. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they tried to kill him. I don't know how many of you have actually had an assassination attempt against your life. I mean, that would rank pretty high in your memory, wouldn't it? Most of us have never gone through that. This man started out that way and had it the whole time. In fact, he was killed in the end. This is one intense life, and yet he is actually a pattern for how the Holy Spirit works inside of a man. Paul in Antioch. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, blaspheming, and contradicting what Paul was saying. The Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them from their region. 
By the way, I don't know, for some of you that may not have ever had that happen to you, it may not sound like that disconcerting of a thing to have happen. This is very challenging. When you're trying to reach an audience and you have someone over here saying, he's lying to you, it doesn't make it easy. Paul in Iconium, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and embittered their minds against the brothers. When an assault was planned by both Gentiles and Jews with their leaders to attack them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding region. This is Paul's life. He's always hearing about these devious plans against him. He's getting out of, you know, of, room, or out of windows in a basket, fleeing from town to town. Paul and Lystra. And some of the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, remember where he just was? Where do they say, where'd he, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And so what do they find? He's in Lystra. So some of the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Which means big heavy rocks are slammed against your skull. They think he's dead, which I like to say he was dead and he was raised to newness of life. I like that thought. It's just more profound. However, you can take it either way. But as the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. It's like, hey guys, we have a job to do. But Paul, your head is sort of uh, misshapen. Yeah, let's get back into Leicester and keep preaching. Paul and Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Leicester and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the minds of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. Now here's what I want you to notice in that. Because as I read that, nothing may stand out. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? When he had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, then he made many disciples. They returned to where? The place of his stoning and the place of Iconium and Antioch where he had to flee. He's like, hey guys, I just really feel strongly we need to go back there. Paul, let's think this through. You see, Paul was actually on the leading edge of heeding how the Holy Spirit was training the body of Christ at that time. Because what you're going to even notice by the body of Christ is they're going to say, Wait, it seems like the Spirit says you're going to suffer in that town. So you shouldn't go. They conclude that he shouldn't go if suffering is going to be up ahead. And what does Paul say? I'm willing to suffer. And that shocked the new church. They couldn't comprehend this idea of willingness to suffer. It's like, what is that? So strengthening the minds of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, to go through many afflictions and thus enter the kingdom of God. What is he going to go back and teach the church there? Could you imagine how profound that would be? The guy that fled, the guy that was stoned, creeps back into the town. And they're like, Paul, you shouldn't be here. I need to teach you something. You're going to inherit this kingdom through much affliction. Who's going to be a better preacher of that than Paul? The very spot where he was stoned, he comes back to it. To say, guys, this is how it works. It's okay. My head looks sort of funny now. I realize that. But guess what? This is how we enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul and Philippi. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the rulers. And they brought them to the magistrates saying, These men being Jews greatly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. The crowd rose up together against them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them. After they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison. Commanding the jailer to guard them securely, having received such an order, he threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, now we could stop right there and just say, who wants to be the next Paul? You see, we see the impact of Paul's life. We see the light. We see the prince of preachers in this man. We're like, that man is something special. What made him special? What made his voice crescendo through the ages? It was that he accepted suffering as the thoroughfare for how it is shared. Paul in Thessalonica The Jews who did not believe became jealous and taking some evil men from the marketplace gathered a crowd, stirred up the city and attacked the house of Jason where they thought he was trying to bring them out to the mob. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Paul and Berea. Then the word, when the word, when the Jews of Thessalonica, remember where he just fled from, learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also stirring up the crowds. The brothers immediately sent Paul away to the sea. Paul in Corinth. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews in unity attacked Paul and brought him to court. Paul in Ephesus. Some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the crowd. Paul in Greece. The Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. Paul in Miletus. 
from Miletus he sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So he calls for the leaders of Ephesus where he has spent time and he has the leaders come and this is what he says to them. When they came to him, he said to them, you know how I always lived among you from the first day that I came to Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials. Do you guys remember how I served the Lord with many tears and trials? Which befell me through the plots of the Jews. I did not keep from declaring what was beneficial to you and teaching you publicly from, the house, from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not wo- knowing what shall befall me there. Now, by the way, there could be no crazier venture than for Paul to go to Jerusalem. No, no, no. So what does he say? Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. So he knows, even before he goes, that imprisonment and affliction awaits him. Guys, I'm going. But none of these things deter me. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could take that one line and stick it in our souls and then say it and mean it? None of these things deter me. But you do know that imprisonment and afflictions await you. Why would that deter me? Do you know what I'm carrying? I'm carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the one thing that can save these people. He loved the Jews. Yeah, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he loved those Jews. And he was willing to go into Jerusalem where they killed Christ and where he'd already, I mean, all sorts of threats breathed out of Jerusalem. Where do you think all was being stirred up in the first place to go in and follow him around and cause harm and havoc? This is like the, the nest of the hornets. Nor do I count my life of value to myself. See, he's teaching the doctrine of suffering right here. So that I may joyfully finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul and Tyre. When when we found the disciples, we remained there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Isn't that an interesting statement? Paul, what is compelling Paul? The Holy Spirit. So what you're going to see multiple times is that people with the Spirit are going to tell him not to go. What are they doing? That doesn't make any sense. Is the Spirit contradicting itself? Here's the way I would describe it. The Holy Spirit is revealing to the saints what is going to happen to Paul. And so their natural disposition is to say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul in Caesarea. While we stayed there many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had arrived, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet, saying, the Holy Spirit says, listen to what the Holy Spirit says, In this man of the Jews of Jerusalem shall bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard these things, both we and the residents implored him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then when Paul, then Paul answered, listen to this. I mean, this is good stuff, guys. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be persuaded, we kept silent and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Okay, what are we learning here, guys? I mean, this is a whole other level of living for Christ. Are we willing to take it as the template, as the pattern? Or are we going to shove it off to an old bygone era and say, well, yeah, that was then, but this is now. We live for self now. Has the Holy Spirit changed his agenda? Has the, have the scriptures changed at any point in time along the way? The message that is supposed to come down to us, has it altered? Paul in Jerusalem. So guess who just went to Jerusalem, guys? The Jews from Asia saw him in the temple. Oh, man, these guys have been hunting him down. Now they see him. Stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. Then the whole city was provoked and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news came up to the commander of the battalion of soldiers that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came and arrested him and ordered that he be bound with two chains. When he came onto the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the people. For the mob of people followed, crying out, Away with him! The high priest Ananias ordered those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. At daybreak, some of the Jews conspired under oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. 
there were more than 40 who had conspired. I don't know what trial you are facing right now, but I have a hunch that Paul the Apostle knows what it's like to walk through difficult situations, which would cause us, when we read his letters, when we read his statements, to recognize that he has found something, even in the worst of difficulties, the darkest of dungeons, the most trying of physical ailments, that this man knows something. I think we can take him for what he's saying. I think we can listen. Paul and Antipatris, he ordered that he, Paul, be guarded in Herod's praetorium, but after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, desiring to do the Jews a favor, left Paul imprisoned. So Paul's just been in prison now for a long time. Paul in Caesarea. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Paul at sea on the way to Rome. There's something that happens in the midst of this. I didn't put it in the, in the text. But after he, gets, he escapes Jerusalem, you know what God says to him? The same way you suffered and testified of me in Jerusalem, I need you to do that in Rome. So Paul knows he has a commission. He's a chosen vessel to get to Rome. I mean, this isn't a safe place either, guys. So Paul is at sea on the way to Rome. Why is he going to Rome? He appealed to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. He knows how to do this thing. He's like, okay, so if I need to get to Rome, hey, I appeal to Caesar. At one point in time, they actually said if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he would have been let go. This guy literally remained a prisoner. Why would he do that? Because he's on a mission. He needs to get to Rome to testify before Caesar of the glory of Jesus Christ. But soon afterward, a tempestuous wind swept through called the Euroclidon. When the ship was overpowered and could not head into the wind, we let her drift. We were violently tossed by the storm. If any of you have ever been seasick... I don't know which one's worse out of all these trials. This would be a hard one. This was weeks of it too. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was upon us, all hope that we should be saved was lost. But striking, I'm skipping a lot here, but striking a sandbar, sandbar where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, the bow stuck and remained immovable, but the stern was broken up by the violent surf. Everyone from the ship literally got back on little pieces of wood. Paul at the island of Malta. So now they make it to the island of Malta, right? Paul has gone through all of this, and now he's sitting around a fire. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, surely this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice does not allow him to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but while they waited and saw no harm befall him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. These guys are obviously easily swayed one way or the other. Where does he make it? To Rome. Same is true with your life. No matter what difficulties you face, you are a chosen vessel for a very specific purpose. And as a result, you can have confidence that God will carry you there, even through trial, even through difficulty. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers. Isn't it funny, the things that get put in Scripture? It's like, well, so many things are removed from Scripture, but we get that. So we know that he sailed. I've never studied it, so some of you probably need to look into this. They sailed in an Alexandrian ship, who cares, whose figurehead was the twin brothers. Why would that be mentioned? Which had wintered at the island. Landing at Syracuse, we waited there for three days. From there, we circled around and sailed to Regium. After one day, the south wind blew, and the, day, and the next day, we arrived at Petuli. There, we found brothers and were invited to remain with them for seven days, and so we went to Rome. Oh, well, that, was, that was one hard journey, guys. I mean, I am exhausted just reading it, let alone Paul living it. A summary of Paul's life. Here's a good one. Every flower, even the fairest, has its shadow beneath it as it swings in the sunlight. Where there is much light, there is much shade. What you just saw in the tapestry of Paul, you see, what we didn't focus on was all the changed lives, the planting of churches, the transformation of culture. That's what was happening. What we just focused on was the shade. And that's what most of us as American Christians want to block out. I don't see the shade, I don't see the shade, I don't see the shade, which is why it's important sometimes to have an entire message which just focuses on shades. Is, hey, guys... God wants to do the big things. He does. But he can only do the big things when we accept the difficulties. 
in our lives when we appropriate them properly. Paul's boast. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep and journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brothers, in weariness and painfulness and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness beside the external things that care of all the church's pressures, church's pressures, that's weird, me daily, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is led into sin and I am not distressed? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my weakness. Paul's boasting here. I mean, what a, it always feels weird when we read that little section where he's boasting. It's like, Paul, I don't think you're supposed to do that. So he boasts in Jesus Christ and what else? His weakness. What? Most of us, when we think of boasting, we think of putting together a resume. Could you imagine filling out a resume? And you're like, yeah, I've been tried by this. I was low in my financial accounts this last month, and I have a lot of people mad at me right now. Uh, yeah, I've been sick for actually three years with this one chronic illness, and I've been in pain constantly. <laughs> Who's going to hire you for that? You see, in the natural realm, we don't esteem that. That's nonsense. That's bad stuff. You hide that. Paul wears it on his sleeve and says, guys, he's chosen to use me. Chief of sinners. I don't deserve this. I'm the least of all the apostles. Why he would choose me is beyond Paul. He can't even comprehend it. But he has chosen weak things to shame the strong. That's his economy. That's how God does things. So if you're feeling weak today, hey, guess what? You're the perfect vessel through which God can use. Paul's extraordinary perspective. By the way, this is right after his boasting. Okay, we're going to transition into the fact that he's talking about these high visions of, of heaven. And then he's going to talk, which we realize is him. It's, it's what he has seen. He's seen these grand things. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a, th- a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, lest I be exalted above measure. I asked the Lord three times that this thing might depart from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. So it's like the early church. God, don't let Paul go in there. Don't let Paul be imprisoned. I mean, if if Paul was your pastor, could you imagine how you'd be praying? God, spare Paul these difficulties. It just makes sense. Why wouldn't they pray that way? Well, Paul's thinking the same thing. I got this messenger of Satan buffeting me. Get that thing out of here. And Paul is teaching, or God is teaching Paul the doctrine of suffering. He's saying, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in this. What you are enduring right now is the perfect stage through which I can show forth my strength. You see, God is not the messenger of it. That's Satan. We have an enemy in this world. But as someone rises up to proclaim the gospel, they, in a sense, become vulnerable to this dimension. They're in a real war. But everything the enemy is wielding against us, God will turn. He will convert. He will transform. So what does Paul say? Therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So I take pleasure. That is a very strange word choice. I take pleasure in weaknesses. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if we could do a pop quiz and you had to be honest? Do you take pleasure in your weaknesses? Do you take pleasure in your reproaches? Do you take pleasure in your hardships? Do you take pleasure in your persecutions? Do you take pleasure in the distresses that you face for Christ's sake? For when I am weak, then I am strong. This was uh, a quote. Uh, It's funny because Philip read the same thing and sent me a text and said, did you read this? I said, yeah, I read it this morning. It just had a significant impact on me. It is the common idea that the pathway of faith is strewn with flowers and that when God interposes in the life of his people, he does it on a scale so grand that he lifts us quite out of the plane of difficulties. Have you ever had that thought that if God's going to intervene in your life, what he does is he lifts you out of difficulty? I mean, that, that, that just makes sense. He's God. Why wouldn't he do that? The actual fact, however, is that the real experience is quite contrary. The story of the Bible is one of alternate trial and triumph in the case of every one of the cloud of witnesses from Abel down to the last martyr. Paul, more than anyone else, was an example of how much a child of God can suffer without being crushed or broken in spirit. 
We find him left for months in the lonely dungeons. We find him telling of his watchings, his fastings, and his desertion by friends, of his brutal and shameful beatings. And here, even after God has promised to deliver him, we see him for days left to toss upon a stormy sea, obliged to stand guard over the treacherous seamen. And at last, when the deliverance comes, there is no heavenly galleys sailing from the skies to take off the noble prisoner. There is no angel form walking along the waters and stilling the raging breakers. There is no supernatural sign of the transcendent miracle that is being wrought. But one is compelled to seize a spar, another a floating plank, another to climb on a fragment of the wreck, another to strike out and swim for his life. Here is God's pattern for our own lives. Here is a gospel of help for people that have to live in this everyday world with real and ordinary surroundings and a thousand practical conditions which have to be met in a thoroughly practical way. God promises, God's promises and God's providences do not lift us out of the plane of common sense and commonplace trial. But it is through these very things that faith is perfected and that God loves to interweave the golden threads of his love along the warp and woof of our everyday experience. So listen to this. Since we used Charles Spurgeon as a, as a unique picture of this message, of this concept, at least more of a modern day one, listen to what he says. I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has been the most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our Father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horrors big with mercy. Oh, that's a great line. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm, it brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. And finally, mark then, Christian, Jesus does not suffer so as to exclude your suffering. He bears a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin, but not from sorrow. Remember that and expect to suffer. Jesus, who is the fullest manifestation of the will of God on this earth, the one who lived it perfectly, he accepted the fact that he was assigned to come here and suffer. We are called the body of Christ. There has never been a brighter light shown than through the life of Jesus Christ. And yet the weakness that this man received, walked in, the misunderstanding, the humiliations that he endured, it was through that weak vessel that the glory of our God was made manifest. And we as the body of Christ, the ones that follow him, the ones that are empowered with the same Holy Spirit, need to accept that God delights in showcasing his strength, but that he chooses weakness. God is not against you having money in your bank account. He's not against you being healthy. Those are wonderful things that can be used for his glory as well. But what I want you to recognize is that instead of pursuing ease and comfort in this life, I want you to pursue him no matter what it costs. There's a difference between the two. Because Paul says whether living in plenty or in want. Paul's not saying that living in plenty ruins the soul. It's just that you have to learn how to stay focused, whether in plenty or in want. Whether you are called to go into Jerusalem and die and suffer, or you are called to go into Fort Collins and just receive some spittle in the, in the face. Are you willing to go where he calls you to go? You don't have to be thrown into prison to be spiritual. What you need to be is agreeable to the Spirit of God. And so for each one of us, that starts at the most mundane fabric of our life. Are we complaining about the challenges that we have? Or are we embracing them saying, God, use this to reveal yourself? That does not mean we stay in a position of breakdown. If we are doing things that are breaking down our life, that's one thing. Paul says, for Christ's sake. When you suffer for Christ's sake, because there's other ways to suffer. You can suffer for stupidity too, yes. But in this, for many of us in this room, we are facing unusual things. 
and they're difficult to continue to walk in. So I appeal to you to walk through them with the same grace that was sufficient for Paul with his thorn. God will make that sufficient for you. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.